0: Thanks for listening to Bullseye. I want to tell you about a new way to get the news each morning. Up First is the morning news podcast from NPR. Give us 10 minutes or so you get a sense of the stories and big ideas of the day. The stuff you really need to know and why it matters. Start your day with Up First weekday mornings by 6 a.m. Eastern time on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
0: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. So here's some career advice, and I'm not going to charge you for it. You're going to have dumb ideas. It doesn't matter what you do. When you do have dumb ideas, you're probably going to hear a voice telling you the idea is so dumb that you should definitely not do it. Now, Here's the advice part. If you love your idea enough, ignore that voice. Do the dumb thing. Guy Branham, who is the comedian and host of the podcast Pop Rocket, just got his own TV show. It's called Talk Show, The Game Show. And he went through that exact same kind of doubt. He had a great guest lined up, Moby, the electronic musician. He wanted to take Moby hunting. Since Moby is an outspoken vegan, he wanted to make him hunt tofu. My my executive producer
2: was essentially like, Guy, I don't know about this. Maybe we should just do some music trivia thing with him. We're putting an entire segment on Moby's comedy skills. Do you really think we should? And I was like, we, but we put so much effort into it. We hung seitan and tempeh in bushes. And I was so uncertain about how the entire show was going to go. And the moment I handed that Nerf gun to Moby, and then a 51-year-old man bounced around like a child, um, <laughs> shooting tofu skins out of the sky, it was magnificent. And from that moment on, I knew uh, that things would
0: be good. Real Talk Moby is a fun dude. It's Bullseye. <laughs> Coming up, I'll talk with Guy about his new show, about the importance of being charming on TV, and about how challenging it is to get his guests to get off script. Guy is also a stand-up comedian. He talks a lot about being gay in his act. He says growing up gay in a small rural town was hard, like you'd expect. But in a weird way, it kind of makes him feel like he belongs
2: we all come from somewhere and so we do have this shared thing of we all left behind different worlds that didn't understand us Um, and in in that case it is the, the cool guy with cool parents from Manhattan who explained to him that he was gay when he was 12 years old who is the outsider and doesn't have that thing.
0: Then we'll talk about the great Donny Hathaway and why his live album is one of the greatest records ever recorded. Finally... We all know sports can make people do totally insane stuff. I will make the case that there's no better person to document that craziness than the Oscar-winning filmmaker, Errol Morris. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week, we're talking with Guy Branham. Guy's a comic I've known for a long time. He's got a mic in his hand. He's brutally honest, super quick witted, and really, really funny. And the other thing about Guy is he's smart, like genuinely insightful, like walked away from a legal career to become a comedian. So, over my company, Maximum Fun, I came up with a scheme to get Guy a podcast. It's actually the sister show of this show. It's called Pop Rocket. It's a weekly panel discussion about pop culture. Got a group of folks who are all really funny and brilliant. Uh, It's honestly one of my favorite shows that we make at Maximum Fun. The guy always stands out. He's got a lot of TV experience. He was a writer on Chelsea Lately and on Totally Biased with W. Kamau Bell. He appeared on camera on both those shows. Now he's got his own show. It's called Talk Show, The Game Show. You might have gathered from the name. It's basically the ultimate version of what he says are television's two most maligned genres. I mean, it's basically pretty straightforward. Guy hosts a talk show, while another guy gives the guests points for doing talk show stuff. And it's real celebrities, folks like Moby and Diablo Cody and Wanda Sykes. It's kind of hard to imagine how it all plays out for me describing it. So here's a little bit from the very beginning of a recent episode.
2: Tonight, these three all-stars will square off for the title of best talk show guest in America. And it all starts with this five-point kickoff question. John Sally was in Bad Boys. Tiffany Haddish was in Girl Trip, and Dan Bukatinski was on Grey's Anatomy. For five points, which hormone produces male secondary sexual characteristics? Tiffany Haddish! Prostate! Sorry, no, that's incorrect. Testosterone! Testosterone is correct! Congratulations, Dan Bukatinski!
3: You've just taken the lead, but it's still anybody's game, because it's time to play Talk Show The Game Show!
0: Guy Branham, welcome to Bullseye. Good to be here. I should say welcome back to Bullseye. Your voice is heard on almost every Bullseye. You have also done interviews on behalf of Bullseye. You've never been the subject of an interview on Bullseye.
2: It's true, but we can hardly behave as though there is an appropriate wall between interviewee and
0: interviewer here. (laughs) We're cuddling, just so the audience knows. (laughs) We're cuddling right now. Um, Guy, you grew up in Sacramento, California, but not in Sacramento, California. And any Californian knows that immediately outside of Sacramento, California, is a vast sea of those billboards for Clover Stornetta dairy (laughs) and... And basically, uh, like, pastures. Right. When people think of
2: California, they think of celebrities and waves and good times and maybe lesbians and winery in the north. But um, in the middle of California, there is a vast sea of, like, yellow dead grass um, (laughs) where all of your boutique agricultural products come from. So I'm from Sutter County, California, the prune basket of the world.
0: Is that the real name of Sutter County, California? Well,
2: they don't actually call it that, but we are very much a a prunes, peaches, walnuts and almonds kind of town and we have the largest prune dryer in the world.
0: Now gay, uh now guy, you're gay. <laughs> I am gay. <laughs> gay, you're guy. Did you know other gays as a
2: kid? Well, it, it's very interesting because I did actually as a as a small child I was exposed to two gay couples. We never called them that. My, my parents only referred to them by the most common slur for, for gay people, but there were a pair of doctors who lived on the other side of the orchard from us, and th- there were uh, two men who owned a flower shop that my mom worked for. So it was something that I was aware of, but in a space that was hostile enough to that that it, one of the first things I knew about it was that it was a horrible, horrible, horrible life. And then my music teacher, she just had a roommate that she spent a lot of time with. (laughs) We didn't have a name for that. How
0: old were you when the music teacher had a roommate?
2: I was like six or seven when I learned about all of these things. I distinctly remember my mom (laughs) told me about her bosses in kind of the nicest way I ever heard gay people described before I went to college, where she was scared that I would say something embarrassing in front of them. So she said like, They are married like a man would be to a woman. They are a couple. And I remember being a little bit confused by that, but then sort of learning all of the terrible things that go along with that and never really – at that point in time, I didn't associate the trouble I was having with culture and people around me with that in any way. I just knew that I was being a boy wrong. And it took me a while to be able to put those things in the same part of my head.
0: What was wrong about the way you
2: were being a boy? Look, I did a lot of trying to hold other boys' hands in, in kindergarten. I tried to help hold everybody's hands in kindergarten. I never wanted to fight with people. They were very upset by the fact that I didn't want to fight with people. I didn't do any torturing of cats. And that's just a normal part of a boy's development in a farm town. I wanted to play with Barbie dolls. I played with He-Man, but I also wanted – I adored Barbie dolls and enjoyed – God, I wanted to learn to French braid. I wanted to learn to French (laughs) braid so hard. And they were just like, no, you're not allowed to do that. You shouldn't want that. You should want to be inside or outside. But I desperately wanted to be inside learning how to cook and French braid.
0: Oh, a boy's dream of plating. (laughs)
2: It just seemed like the most sophisticated thing a person could do.
0: I want to play a clip from your uh, most recent stand-up album, which is called Effable. And in this clip, you're talking about the fact that, that being gay is no longer the very special and exclusive fraternity that it once was.
2: It's a little bit sad, the way things have changed. Because, like, it used to be that to be an out gay person, you had to be amazing. You had to be... Like Oscar Wilde or Virginia Woolf. Now, essentially, we'll let anyone in. Being gay used to be Harvard. Now it's Chico State.
0: When did you start to think about yourself as gay?
2: really late like i wasn't if you'd asked me if i was gay in college i would have laughed and explained it away i didn't come out until law school
0: there was Did you when now i want to be clear like when you laughed and explained it away when you were in college was that because you were trying to hide something you knew to be true or because you were still trying to figure out what you were trying to hide it is
2: like i was very specifically using the freudian defense mechanism of denial like not repression, I knew that the thing that aroused me sexually was men, but I was trying to find any way to have an excuse to say i wasn't gay because that was a bad thing and a weird thing, and I didn't want to be associated with that. There was just something broken in me that meant I was turned on by men and somehow I was going to be able to fix it and it took It took a lot of Berkeley <laughs> to be able to to make me be like, okay with that and understand those things in the same place.
0: Did you understand that you wanted to live in a different world?
2: Yeah, that I was able to accept from a very early age. And we think came a lot of hostility from my town, and to some extent, my family of why was I so committed to not wanting to be part of this thing that had no interest in me being there, like a world that kind of hated me, and was constantly policing me for my behavior. There was always a lot of, what, you think you're better? And thinking I was better was the only plausible escape from just the hell of everyone constantly being mad at me for the things that seemed most instinctual to me.
0: It it seems like that must have been a really intense conflict, not only because people were always giving you that I don't know what you want to call it, that guilt trip, that that line of attack. But also because no matter how painful it is, your home is your home. And so, like, for you, you have to deal with the idea that you want to leave this home that is your home. It's strange because
2: the things that I have most connection to and most ownership of are are very – complex emotionally for me. Like there's the very weird thing of Jesse, you may not imagine this about me, but uh I miss pheasant hunting a great deal. Like every morning during the fall when I was like 14 until I left for college, my dad would wake me up at 5:30 in the morning and we would go out to some rice field somewhere and we would trot around and we would hunt pheasants and I hated it more than life itself. It was torture. There was nothing about it that was fun. And now I'm so nostalgic for that experience of like watching a retriever do its job and smelling a pheasant as you cut it open to remove its entrails. Like, and the thing is, is they're not really things I can do anymore. It's not like I have a dog. Um, It's not like my parents have a dog that you, you could do this with. And it's so distance from my own life. But the only reason I'm able to have that kind of nostalgia with it is because I am – so distanced from it.
0: You played on the football team.
2: I played on the football team. My football coach was one of the few adult men who wasn't terrible to me while I was growing up. There was something, like, his masculinity was, like, validated enough by being the football coach that he thought I was great. And, like, all of these other guys were, like, constantly, like, just sh- so pissed off at me. Like, to understand my town is, like, it's a very Dust bowl-y town where all of the old white guys have Southern accents because they were all born in Oklahoma or Arkansas. And like the whole time I was growing up, they would always be what do you want to do when you grow up? And my usual answer was either waitress or writer. And then they would always be like, don't you want to be a football player? And were so mad at me for not wanting to be a football player. They didn't even suggest that you become a waiter instead of a waitress. <laughs> <laughs> I was very young then. and it, it seemed kind of adorable when I was three. Um uh, but uh there was something so weird and cool about the the footballiest of the guys being like, Oh yeah, he's great.
0: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest this week is Guy Branham. He hosts Pop Rocket, Bullseye Sister Show. He also just got his own TV show. It's called Talk Show the Game Show. It's airing now on True TV. Were there good things about being on the football team?
2: Well, I'm not supposed to talk about it, but, like, the the most wonderful and most terrifying thing for a 14-year-old gay boy is walking into a locker room. Because it is both the simultaneous moment of, like, <laughs> oh, God, everything I ever wanted to see is right here before me. And also, I am so in danger of being found out right now. Like, y- you do kind of feel like a spy, like you're like Carrie Russell and the Americans, <laughs> like undercover and people are about to find you out. But that part of it was cool. At what point
0: did you start to think of yourself as gay?
2: <laughs> um it took the internet. One of the reasons I do love that joke you played about um Harvard or Chico State is that I benefited from the 90s. Like I have to coldly realize that I didn't just pop out of the closet when I was 16 in 1992. It took the world changing for me to be safe enough to be one of those people. And so I have so much regard and admiration for the people who were coming out in 1932 or 1962. What would I have done without them? But it really took, in the same way that, like, the printing press broke politics and the Catholic Church and we still haven't gotten things back together again— The internet changed identity and sexuality. Like, um, you can't keep a secret from yourself the way that you could before when it is just so easy to privately learn about it and communicate with other gay people. And it took me being terrified, but chatting with other gay guys online and realizing, "Oh, oh, they're people. They're very nice. They're wonderful. They're more like me than the people I was taught to trust Um, and that allowed me to start my head changing and things like the adventures of Priscilla Queen of the Desert and you know this all of this wonderful fabulous culture that came at us in the 90s clueless that allowed me to understand that I wasn't a horrible thing I was actually a rather wonderful thing
0: how old were you?
2: I was, I was 23 when I came out, but it was, I, I essentially became happy for the first time really in my life in college, like around 21. And it took two years of, of feeling fine and satisfied and no longer scared that somebody was going to make me work in a ditch for the rest of my life before I could sort of raise that topic and tell my parents.
0: What was it like for your parents and for the world back home?
2: Well, I I came out of the closet when I was in law school in Minnesota over the phone to my parents, and it was very distanced, but I chose that because I knew that it wasn't going to go well. They were mad at me. Like, they were very deeply mad at me. They sort of, like, shut down to me for, like, a couple of years. They were going through some hard stuff themselves, but it it was also... uh, For a lot of gay kids, I think you're so aware of the problem that you're potentially going to be. And people are so likely to tell you what a problem you are that you're just trying to not be a problem as much as possible. And it was really the first time in my life that I said in sort of a deep way, (laughs) uh, I need something out of you right now. And neither of my parents were really there for me. And my mom had always been great. My mom was the conduit where, like, all of this culture... And wonderfulness. And my mom is Jewish. My dad is not. But my mom was also a connection to the idea of we live in a larger world than just Sutter, California. And she wasn't really able to be there for me at that point in time. And it was hard. You know, Um, it was hard, but it did force me to reach out in new directions for support. And I learned a lot about
0: the world and myself. Did you, do you see your parents' reaction differently now than you did then?
2: It's nice to have a story where they figured it out and things got great. My dad died about a year ago, and there never came a point in time when he would directly address me being gay. He didn't need to hear about it, and if I tried to talk about it at all, and particularly... When I would go home, one of the things I deeply needed to do was to build some sort of bridge between the person I was between zero and 17 and the person I am now. And my parents were deeply uncooperative with that. One of the things about this question of, like, can you have any relationship to the place that you're from? Jesse, it's so beautiful. There's this tiny little, like, range of volcanoes there and, like, right in the middle of the Central Valley. And it is so beautiful. And I love it so much. But any time I tried to talk about the person I was when I lived there or what it was like being there, they would get so mad. And that's hard because part of being a whole human being is not pretending that my life is West Hollywood and graduate degrees, but understanding that a lot of it is finishing concrete and smelling the guts of a pheasant. Um, my mom's.
0: Why, why were they getting mad? What were they getting mad about?
2: They don't want to hear a story about how they were someone's jailer for 17 years, especially not when they were working very, very hard to keep my teeth taken care of and buy me G.I. Joe's and, you know, pay for me to go to Future Business Leaders of America conventions like they thought they were doing their best job. And then I come back with this narrative of I was in pain the whole time and. You know, these are people who, they had my sister when they were 18 and 19. They had me when they were 24. They worked their entire lives just to, like, give us a a better life. And they did. And now I have to lay some narrative of oppression on top of that. Who do I think I am? My mom is better because women have to understand other people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And for a long time, it was really hard for her to talk about that stuff. So my parents also didn't have any interest in paying attention to any creative work that I did because they were scared that I would speak ill of them or talk about being gay openly. And I do do one of those things a lot in my act. So they never really paid attention to what I did. And then one day, I was coming home from recording Pop Rocket here and my dad said, what did you do today? And I told him I recorded my podcast. And he said, now what's that again? And this was like the 17th time I had explained to the podcast to him. And I just sort of said, if you cared, you would know by now. And like three weeks before he died, he listened to a pop rocket. And it was a pop rocket we had done about pop culture of the 60s. So he was able to like relate to it and understand it. And my father was not – he did not make gestures to understand me better. And that he – tried, like, and kind of was able to enjoy something. So uh, before I lost him, it was a really wonderful thing, and it would not have happened without you, so I very much appreciate that.
0: I'll continue my conversation with Guy Branham after a break. He'll tell me about the single thing he values most on television and in real life, charm. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from HelloFresh, a meal kit delivery service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient. HelloFresh sources the freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantities needed to eliminate food waste, along with step-by-step recipes for delicious meals designed to take 30 minutes to make, and everything is delivered in a special insulated box for free. Bullseye listeners can receive $35 off their first week of deliveries. Just visit HelloFresh.com and enter promo code BULLSEYE35 on your first purchase. 1A is NPR's new daily show inspired by the First Amendment. 1A is the news with those who make the news, great guests, and topical debate, all framed in ways to make you think and engage. Each day, 1A will champion your right to speak freely. Check out 1A with Joshua Johnson from WAMU and NPR on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to Bullseye, my guest this week is comedian Guy Branham. You might know him as the host of our sister show, Pop Rocket. He now has his own TV show on True TV. It's called Talk Show, The Game Show. It's a talk show where people get points for being charming. I want to ask you a question that has to do with a theory that I've just formulated. So tell me if I'm off the deep end. But I know that through college and law school, you participated on these uh, brain competition teams of, I think, a couple different kinds, right? Like a college quiz bowl. Quiz bowl, yeah. You were on the quiz bowl team.
2: At Berkeley and at the University of Minnesota.
0: And I feel like quiz bowl is a thing where – Not only do you get rewarded for being smart, but there's rules and standards that make it so that the playing field is even?
2: Yeah, I mean, the extent to which social rules make me happy because I understand, like, explicit social rules make clear what should be going on. When I was in high school, I was obsessed with parliamentary procedure, which is (laughs) another kind of just sort of... May, like, providing clear structures for behavior. And if you're working within that, you're fine. And, yeah, like, as somebody who felt uncertain for most of my life, the clear validation of you ring a bell and you say Antigone and they say 10 points, just...
0: Glorious. So, so satisfying. Pro tip, the answer is always Antigone. (laughs) Take it it from a quiz bowl champion and a many-time academic decathlon medalist. (laughs) Jesse and Guy say, say Antigone. (laughs) Um, That actually is pretty much the premise of Talk Show the Game Show. It is, what if being charming had rules? (laughs)
2: yes exactly um so one day i was on my way to a quiz bowl tournament in michigan i believe and i was in the back of a 15 passenger van on like a 12-hour drive and my friend Emery and i were talking about television because that's what we talked about um and i just came down with a hard stance of there's a right and wrong way to be on a talk show and from then on we started discussing this idea of talk show the game show and then 10 years later um, I <laughs> had left Chelsea lately and was in like a career funk and didn't know what was next. And one night I just stayed up late and I was like, well, how would talk show the game show work? And then I stayed up into the middle of the night writing up these rules. And then I asked, uh, <laughs> uh Jamie flam at the improv if I could come and do it. And he said, yes. Um, and it was just <laughs> so weird to over 10 years later, this like win. I turned into reality, like dingy, like experimental space next to the real comedy club kind of reality. But it was still real enough for me. And it was then the night after the first talk show, the game show is one of the happiest experiences I've ever had in my life. I could not go to sleep. I was just so delighted that it had worked.
0: Anyone who's ever heard you talk, Guy, and certainly anyone who's ever listened to you uh, guest hosting this show or hosting Pop Rocket knows that charming is your favorite word in the English language. It's rare for you to complete a paragraph without using the word charming. It's your highest compliment. And I wonder why you came to value that word and idea so much.
2: It's nice when people are nice, you know? Like, it's nice when people are nice and people are giving the fullness of themselves to that. Like, so frequently when people come to talk show, the game show, they think that they're supposed to be pretending to be doing something, that they're supposed to be doing some sort of parody of a person on a talk show. And the thing is, is talk shows at their best are people having a real conversation with the utmost of themselves. And... I love Babette's Feast. It is uh, a Danish movie from the late 80s about, um, essentially about a woman who cooks a meal for some people. There's not much more to it. But one of the things she says is that an artist's dream is to give their, up, let me give my utmost. And I love to get give my utmost and I love to have my friends give their utmost and get to enjoy that. It's a beautiful thing. And when you're raised as a man in our society, Giving your utmost is supposed to be this zero-sum game. It's supposed to be that there's a winner and a loser. And charm is the game where everybody wins.
0: I, I feel like the record should reflect that with all of the weighty emotional topics that we've discussed on this program, which there have been many, the moment that you were forced to wipe a tear away was when we started talking about charm.
2: I cry at good things. Like, I, I cry a lot, but I cry at things that make me happy. Because here's another of my grand theories. Why do they call us gay? Why is Why is the euphemism for homosexual people that we are happy, especially when we know that gay people are so much more likely to experience depression and experience suicide or suicide attempts? And the thing is, is like... At the end of the day, once you realize I'm probably never going to have children I'm prob- uh, who are a biological union of me and the person I love, once you realize there's not really a religion that wants me, um, you have to have some reason to keep going. And a lot of people don't keep going. But the people who do figure out why. And I, I think that's why <laughs> – we as a people end up doing things that are fun and beautiful and charming is because we have to, in an immediate sense, know why we're living this life and why there's a reason to keep going. So hard, thi- hard things happen, and I will get through them, but it is the wonderful things. It is Beyonce and the Dream Girls medley at the Academy Awards the year that Dream Girls was nominated that makes me cry every time because... That's worth living for.
0: It's bullseye. I'm talking with comedian Guy Branum. He's got a new TV show. It's called Talk Show, the Game Show. It's airing right now on True TV. One of the reasons that I was so thrilled when you agreed to host the sister show of this show, Guy, was because because you really care about people in the world, and I I loved the pieces that you made for. Uh, totally biased. The late night talk show that ran uh, for a, a year or two on FX and FXX a few years ago. You were you were a writer on the show, and some of the writers came in front of the camera and, and delivered kind of signature bits. Yours was called "No More Mr. Nice Gay," um, and I, I want to play one. And it, you are you are basically reacting to this guy. Called Chris Culliver, who played for the 49ers, I think, at the time, um, who had said some really lousy homophobic stuff, um, and said it publicly too. Um, so this is this is my guest Guy Branham on Totally Biased uh, just a few years ago.
3: I am here to call you out, Chris Culliver, not for being a homophobe, but for being bad at football. <laughs> You said you can't be with none of that sweet stuff. You want to know what else would have been sweet, Chris? That Super Bowl ring you're never going to have. And hey, Chris Culliver, maybe you should worry less about who gets behind me on Saturday night and worry a little more about Jacoby Jones getting behind you on Sunday night than passing a pass, then scoring a touchdown. Because people only care what you think because you're good at football. And last Sunday, you weren't
0: that good at football. You lost. (laughs) How did your job on that show end up being, and it's one that you're really good at, calling out stuff?
2: Well, One of the great things about Kamau is he was very aware of the fact that, like, as a black man who has had to watch white people talk about race on television for his entire life... W. Kamau Bell, the host of the show. Yeah. um, He understands that sometimes it's really annoying to to have other people talking about your experience without having any experience in that world of, of their own. And so it was always really good about wanting people from the show to talk about their perspectives on things. And the the thing is is like when you're a gay person, you've just lived a whole life with lots of people expressing opinions about you. And there is a presumption that you will simply be quiet and take it. And one of the things for me was the minute I came out of the closet, I was so full of Berkeley that I was just like, oh, no, I I will not take it. I will always say what I can. And another thing is years of starting out in stand-up where people on stage were saying horrible things about gay people and if I wasn't on the show or I wasn't after them on the show I didn't get to say anything in response it just filled me with this deep need to be able to get my chance to say hey hey nobody step the f- back and I remember hearing about that stuff from the the 249ers players and getting so mad and so hurt particularly because they were from San Francisco the place where I started comedy And what should be the safest place for gay people in America? And that was probably the – that's the
0: football team of the place you grew up.
2: No, Jesse. We weren't rich enough to like the 49ers.
0: Was it Raiders country?
2: Oh, okay. So (laughs) Raiders was deemed like a a little bit edgy and trashy. So we were in this weird in-between territory where like my dad thought of us as like better than Raiders fans but also not fancy enough to be 49ers fans. Not
0: white wine types like those 49ers
2: Exactly. Exactly. Um, so he always liked the Washington Redskins for no reason. But I remember watching the game and seeing the dude get behind him and catch the interception and just being so pleased that I was like, oh, I, you know, that magical moment when it just crystallizes in your head exactly what you will say to someone. Because, you know... Um, Finger up sass is, um, it's very satisfying in a world where people have constantly been telling you who you are or or how you should feel. There's something nice about, even if it doesn't change the world, just getting to let out how you feel.
0: What are the things in a talk show appearance that you value?
2: Here's what I want. <laughs>
0: <laughs> let the record show that Guy struck a delivering the truth pose before saying this.
2: All right. I want an entrance. I want you to come in and let everybody know you're ready to be on. From one talk show appearance, I want one juicy, beautiful anecdote from your most recent project so that we get a feel of what you're doing, but it humanizes you. And I, I, like, I also just want sort of like a little banter on some sort of area of material, some sort of thing you're interested in so that we we get to know what's going on in your life right now. Do you think that uh, juicing has just gone crazy and they're too expensive? I want to hear a little bit of that. Um, and also, I want you to show up looking like you're on a talk show. I want cocktail dresses. I want, you know, a little bit of pop that says you're dressed like you, but you're dressed like the best version of you. And yes, I want you to be drinking, or at least make a joke about however uh, how the stuff that's in your um, in your mug is alcohol, even if it isn't. I want I want at least pretending.
0: It's Bullseye. I'm talking with Guy Branham. Guy hosts talk show, the game show on True TV. Guy, we don't have the benefit of a pre-interview on Bullseye, but I do want to ask you. You've been working on talk show, the game show on the True TV network lately. Yes. Uh, Do you guys get up to a lot of hijinks on set? (laughs) Um,
2: And that's the terrible thing, is that I always worry that I don't have enough good anecdotes. Um, (laughs) I always worry that after I've put all of this stuff together that I am myself a terrible talk show guest. Um, Our first show, a little rough, didn't go great. Everybody was learning what they were doing. Second show... We had kind of one of the most produced segments we were ever going to do on the show. It was a bonus game for uh, electronic music artist Moby. Are you familiar with Moby? Sure. The
0: uh, charmer lives in a castle here in Los Angeles.
2: (laughs) So my, my executive producer was essentially like, guy, I don't know about this. Maybe we should just do some music trivia thing with him. We're putting an entire segment on Moby's comedy skills. Do you really think we should? And I was like... We, but we put so much effort into it. We hung seitan and Tempe in bushes. Oh, he was, he was hunting tofu. That was the game, as he was hunting tofu. And I was so uncertain about how the entire show was going to go until – because every time I had done it live, it was a great experience and it always felt fun. But after that first show, I was nervous. And the moment I handed that Nerf gun to Moby and then a 51-year-old man bounced around like a child um, <laughs> shooting tofu skins out of the sky – Um, It was magnificent. And from that moment on, I knew uh, that things would be good.
0: We'll continue my conversation with Guy Branum after a quick break. He'll tell me about the secret to dealing with hecklers, make them feel a little bit of love. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Gorilla, the new limited event series presented by Showtime. A young, educated couple fighting social injustice take matters into their own hands, but find themselves in the crosshairs of a racist police force. From Academy Award winner John Ridley, Guerrilla stars Frida Pinto, Babu Sise, with Idris Elba. Don't miss Guerrilla with new episodes Sunday at 9 p.m. Download the Showtime app now to start your free trial. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Guy Branham. He's a comic and a writer it has been on Chelsea lately and on Totally Biased with W. Kamau Bell. He's got his very own TV show now. It's called Talk Show, The Game Show. I feel like one of the sort of rhetorical modes of funny gay men in America is bitchiness. It's by by no means the only one, but it's it's one that's reasonably prevalent. And I wonder how you feel about that as a way of being funny and a way of being in the world?
2: A, let us begin by saying, I am proud of it. Bitch is a a slur that we have for women who have opinions that they are not supposed to have. As somebody who is categorized as unmasculine, uh, I am proud to have opinions. And I am proud to have opinions that are at odds with many of the set opinions of the world. There comes a point where you do have to wonder how much am I letting my scar tissue define me? How much am I just being a creature of my anger? And it's really interesting when I see, like when I was first on television on a regular basis on Chelsea Lately, I started to have this experience of like gay guys complaining about me and complaining about how I was too fat and I wasn't a real gay guy for that reason or I was too effeminate and so I was too gay for that reason. And they were telling what their problem was with me in their sassiest possible way. And I had to kind of respect it and love it because I knew that that's what I would have been doing if I was watching some gay guy on TV and wasn't the gay guy. I would be trying to express control over my world in some way and let out some degree of rage. And I think that a hard thing for the gay community, the gay male community particularly, is that we do so come from a space of criticism that we have a hard time making culture of our own and respecting culture of our own, God knows we can appropriate other people's culture and turn it into something magical. And I, and appropriation is an important part of gay culture. We are not allowed to have our own culture until we are adults, which means as children we are forced to learn through analogy and appropriation. I will never apologize for that. But I do think part of being a grown-up is like – Owning your damage and trying to move beyond it and learning not to just be immediately angry or critical. I love doing crowd work and I love sassing and being mean to someone in the audience. But one of the important things I learned as a stand-up is like if you can take a heckler and turn them into a good audience member without making them feel bad, without alienating them, making them feel a little bit bad for for shouting too much, but also making them feel warm and loved – like, isn't that better? Doesn't that make the whole audience feel better? Or one time I was at a show and I asked for somebody's name and a low voice gave me a woman's name. And so I immediately assumed that somebody was making a joke or was like trying to subvert me from from the audience. And there was that gut comic reaction of tear them apart. And then there was... That higher brain function of, guy, you saw a trans woman here earlier. It's probably just her. And it was a very funny comic named Olivia Hader. And there's just something nice about being grown up enough to step back and realize there are answers other than rage. (laughs) Like, there are answers other than bitchiness. There are answers other than tearing things down. Like, take a moment, breathe, and think if there is an honest or good reason for this.
0: How comfortable do you feel now in your life being a person that recognizes their scar tissue and moves on, or what you just said?
2: I get kind of scared of being happy, or like, fine. I get scared that my I will lose my edge and I will no longer be a magical, dazzling creature. And it's hard as time goes on to accept your specificity. Like, when you're 15, you're like, I could be anything. But as time goes on, you realize, like, I've made choices, you know, and... There are really good parts that go along with it, and there are bad parts that go along with it. I've never really been in a stable romantic relationship, uh, and I could just get mad at myself for that. Or I could understand that I lived in a world where that wasn't a possibility until I was an adult. And that has affected me. We can't pretend like it hasn't affected me. And there there are magical things about it, and there are lots of other kinds of Happiness that I have gotten to experience. I want to keep learning. I want to keep growing. I want to love as many people around me as I can. Um, but also, like, your life happened. <laughs> you know, your, your life happened and all of those specificities go, go along with it. And you have to play the hand that you were
0: dealt. Guy Branham, thank you so much for coming on Bullseye. It was great to get to talk to you.
2: Thank you for having me, Jesse. It's always a pleasure.
0: Guy Branham his show, Talk Show, The Game Show, airs Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on True TV. You can also catch Guy and his insights into popular culture on our sister show, Pop Rocket, which, oh my gosh, I almost made it through the whole show without asking, Guy, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week? Hey, Jesse. This week on Pop Rocket, we are talking about the
2: French cannibal horror film Raw. It will be a good time, and Karen
0: is bringing snacks. <laughs> Guy Branham, ladies and gentlemen. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's time now for Cannonball. Yahoo! We take albums that everyone agrees are classics or albums that everyone should agree are classics and find out what makes them so great. This week, we're going to talk about Donny Hathaway Live. It was recorded in Hollywood and New York in 1972. It's almost entirely covers with Hathaway singing and playing piano. Donny Hathaway Live is one of Emily Lordy's all-time favorite records. Emily is a professor at the University of Massachusetts, where she lectures on black literature and music. She loved this album so much, she wrote an entire book about it, the 33 and the 3rd series. And if you ask her, she is convinced. Donny Hathaway does not get the respect he deserves. <laughs>
1: Donny Hathaway was a phenomenally gifted singer, composer, arranger, and band leader who sort of quietly revolutionized the technical and expressive possibilities of soul music. And yet, despite his contributions, he's often excluded from histories of American popular music. This is in part because Hathaway's earnest sincerity and love of real musical beauty don't necessarily fit our archetypes. Of the stereotypical macho soul man. Let's take a listen to what's going on. It's the first track on his live album. Mother Mother. an interesting move for Hathaway to begin his set with this song which was at that time a massive hit for Marvin Gaye who was a far more famous artist. So Donny Hathaway is opening a set on a coast the west coast where he's never played in front of a number of people who have never seen him play before with a song that has been made famous by somebody who's far better known. There are a couple of different ways to interpret that decision. One would be that it's a kind of modest overture. You know, this, this idea that Even if people don't know Donny Hathaway, they'll probably know this song, so it's a kind of way in. But another way to look at it, and the way that I would tend to interpret it, is that it's like the ultimate gangster move. Donny Hathaway is saying, he can take any song and remake it, and just kill it, and move on. What's going on? From this record was his cover of John Lennon's Jealous Guy.
3: I was dreaming of a past And my heart was
0: beating fast I began to
3: lose control
1: He recorded Jealous Guy live just six weeks after Lennon had released this song on his album Imagine. And what Hathaway does, as he would do for so many um, recordings, is to remake this song in his own image. John Lennon's version of the song is a kind of demure apology that is issued from a man whose jealousy has gotten the better of him. When Hathaway sings the song, however... He kind of steadily builds the intensity of of the lyric, as if telling the story about this night he got jealous, just makes him mad all over again. I Hathaway's version, which starts as an apology, ends up with a demand as he ends up singing towards the end in this ad lib, I don't want nobody looking at you. So, what's so interesting about that to me is that I think that it kind of exposes the central irony of Lenin's version. Because what Hathaway does is to show how insufficient, if not actually hypocritical, it is to apologize for being jealous while also complacently admitting that you're just a jealous guy. In Hathaway's version, that admission comes to seem like more of an excuse than an apology. It comes to seem like it's less the answer to this problem than the problem itself. is you've got a friend a song originally written and recorded by carol king this to me is the album's most iconic moment because the album as a whole documents not only donny hathaway's incredible abilities as a pianist composer arranger band leader and of course incredible vocalist but it also documents the love that you can really hear so clearly between Tony Hathaway and his audience so you can hear that the crowd erupts as he plays the first chords of the song many people in the audience would have recognized it from his duet with Roberta Flack but they also then Took the opportunity to play the role of Roberta Flack as Donny Hathaway is singing the song. You know they let him sing the first verse alone, but as soon as he gets to the chorus, they join in at full voice. The last track on Donny Hathaway Live is Voices Inside, the subtitle of which is Everything Is Everything.
0: everything,
1: is everything yo. And it's a 13-and-a-half-minute instrumental jam. Even though the song is called Voices Inside, the vocals are not the most important part of this song. Really, this is an instrumental song, and it's especially an opportunity for Donny Hathaway to turn the spotlight on the different members of his band, of whom he was extremely proud. So what we hear is Donny Hathaway breaking this version of the song down into four movements, as he says. That's interesting because it recalls the fact that he studied music education, among other things, as an undergraduate at Howard University, and he retained that kind of teacherly role throughout his life so here he's explaining how the song works breaking it down into these four movements Donny Hathaway sequentially introduces the different members of his band who are gonna play these solos not only does he introduce Mike Howard for instance on guitar but he tells us that he's from Washington DC not only does he introduce Willie Weeks who's gonna play what will become a legendary bass solo but he tells us that Willie Weeks is from Salemburg North Carolina and he calls him the baddest bass player in the country. puts into action what Martin Luther King called the concept of a beloved black community. Donnie Hathaway is very intent on distributing the voices of this song amongst the different players in his group. It's also important at a moment when black expressive labor is not necessarily being acknowledged. Donnie Hathaway is very careful to work against that idea of obscuring or even stealing black music. Um, and not crediting its originators by making a point of naming and identifying and even giving us the place of origin of all of the people who are contributing. It's an album that bears his name only, but he wants to make it clear in the way that he's performing the song that it is truly a collective communal enterprise. ¶¶ Is
0: everything, yeah. Yeah. Dr. Emily Lordy on the album she would add to the pop culture canon 1972's Donnie Hathaway Live. Every week, we like to leave you with a pop culture tip from me, your host. It's called The Outshot. The filmmaker Errol Morris loves nothing more than documenting a singular vision. War criminal, executioner, or just guy who loves turkey hunting and won't shut up about it. Errol Morris will document them, and he has won Oscars for this. Every subject is absolutely unique, absolutely committed to something that some might think was crazy or dangerous or laughable. Morris's camera looks them in the eyes and lets them speak. Now, I'll be honest, I love when Morris talks to Temple Grandin or Donald Rumsfeld, important people. But I really love his commitment to regular folks with irregular passions. And there's nothing that incites irregular passion in regular folks like sports. That's why I love Morris's series, It's Not Crazy, It's Sports, six short films that he made a couple of years ago for ESPN. One of them is about a streaker. He runs naked onto sports fields. His name is Mark Roberts. He's sort of a craftsman, an artist with one broad brush. He says that he loves to hear people laugh.
3: 65,000 people in the stadium all rose at once and screaming and cheering. The adrenaline and that feeling of euphoria was absolutely unbelievable. I think everybody in the world should streak at least once. You have to experience it to understand what the actual feeling's like. I'm not very well endowed. I haven't got a lovely body. If I was well endowed, beautiful body, I'd be a poser. And I wouldn't have to run. I'd just stand there. But I've got to run fast because my body's a mess.
0: One of the stories is about the lengths people will go to to acquire sports memorabilia. It asks simple questions like, who would pay $8,000 for Ty Cobb's dentures? When I bought them, my oldest son, Brian, he said, Ma, everybody's talking about you. People could have, they could have a car for what you paid for those teeth they think you're crazy. Of all the items in that auction, that auction took almost 22 million, but the dentures got more press than any of, I think there was 1,500 items, so that made me happy. Somebody comes over, they know I'm a collector, what'd you buy now? I'd say, eh, hey, look at these teeth. So you know you'd always have a great conversation piece. That's why I went after them. I just got lucky, but I mean, I, it's changed my life. I was just a nobody. There's the story of a man whose life was dedicated to being Mr. Met, you know, the guy with the giant baseball head who dances around at Mets games in New York. And to his downfall, yes, he had a downfall. There's one about an elaborate heist, a guy who risked his life to steal a giant Michael Jordan jersey. And weirdly, maybe the most powerful of all of them is also the most modest. It's called The Subterranean Stadium. It's about a man, a grown man well into middle age, who runs a tabletop football league. You know tabletop football? That game from the 60s where the little magnetic guys wobble on a shaky metal field?
3: If you're a football fan and you have somebody sit down with you who knows how to play this game, teaches you how to play it correctly, with the right equipment and rules, you'll become addicted You'll love it. A game with moving parts like this, where there's actually action figures and you can control the action. You're the coach. It it makes it so much like moving chess, only a lot more fun. Moving chess? You make the wrong move, you're cooked.
0: (laughs) In some ways, this guy is the least ambitious of the subjects. He's not rich. He doesn't have to scam his way onto the field at the Super Bowl or free climb through the ceiling of a basketball arena. He just paints the new logo onto football figurines, brings a few friends into his basement on the weekend, keeps stats. But he is inflamed by a sincere and dedicated passion. His friends go along with it because they love him, they buy into the madness.
3: What keeps us going year after year after year? John, nothing makes him happier than to see us down there having a good time, arguing with each other. You get to play this forever? That's one of the beauties of this game, is we can be old and decrepit and still play it. As long as I can get up and go down them cellar stairs, yeah, I'll be playing till I can't play no more. And from what you say, you'll be some ethereal spirit above. Who knows? Who knows what the future holds? But
0: I'll be ready for it. Because the truth is that sports don't matter. Ask the 25 public radio listeners writing me letters right now. Sports is absurd. Like, fundamentally absurd. Jerry Seinfeld once said, I think it's very insightful, that we're basically rooting for laundry. But that passion that sports incites, it does matter, especially when we share it. Acknowledging its absurdity reduces none of its power. Of course, it's ridiculous for this man to spend his nights changing the uniforms on little plastic men with a single hair paintbrush. Of course, his invented pageantry in a basement in the Midwest is absurd. But his hand? is guided by sincere feeling and a desire to share it with the world or or at least connect with a few other people. And this is where Errol Morris's great gift shows itself. He points the camera at that feeling, at that passion, and then he listens when it speaks. That's my outshot. We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. Our show recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He has help from Christian Duenas. Production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Kara Hart and Nick Liao. The senior producer at MaximumFun.org is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided to us by Dan Wally. Thanks to Dan. Our theme music was recorded by the Go Team and provided to us by Memphis Industries, their record label in the band, thanks to them. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are free to listen to. Just go to MaximumFun.org or open up your favorite podcast software. And while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We're sharing interviews, giving you sneak previews to upcoming Bullseye guests, and even some funny, dumb stuff from the Internet. It's at Facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thornton. Just click on Like. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
1: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.